Uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 today. We've got a large task ahead of us. As you, if, you, if you've got a copy of your notes, you should have two pieces of paper. One of them is just information. The other is sermon notes. You should have a back and a front to your sermon notes. If you don't, you're going to get lost halfway through. So there's some there back at that table. If, you, if you've got a blank sheet, sometimes our copier has a malfunction. There's David, David Crane. He, he preached for us last week and done an awesome job. Uh, you're fixing to head out on the Appalachian Trail, right? Yes, sir. And uh, how, how many miles are you gonna, y'all going to cover? 2,181 With your feet. <laughs> With both feet, Lord willing. And uh, thinking about you this, this week as we, I thought about us getting through four chapters this morning. And, uh, and so I thought that was a pretty good illustration. We're, uh, we're not going to do what David's going to do. We're not going to walk 2,000 miles through these four chapters by foot. We're going to get in our helicopter and we're going to land on the mountain peaks this morning. So I want you to see that and understand that up front. But remember what we're about. We're about seeing the gospel in Genesis. This is what we want to see this morning. We don't want to miss, miss the point. And so turn with me to Genesis 6. And we're going to start in verse 5. Stand with me in reverence to God's word. After singing this, after singing what we've been, how we've been singing about Christ and our salvation, that we this morning get the privilege of knowing God and worshiping God, this passage should both make you rejoice and sober you to your very core. This is the Lord, the Lord's word, the Lord speaking. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds from heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, flesh which, is in, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of the sword into 
the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. To every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve for food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Lord, as we read this very familiar text, we pause and we pray and we ask you, Lord, in our flesh, help us. Help us not to assume and to presume and to put our minds in neutral this morning over a story we've heard since childhood. Lord, show us your gospel. Show us our Savior. Show us our salvation and your promise you made to a people. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you that we can never mind the depths of any passage that we ever study. We will stir ourselves and stir ourselves as long as we have breath to know your word. And by knowing it, we know you. Help us, Lord, we pray now in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Be seated. So we've been at this for a little while. Genesis 1 to 3. Recorded creation at a fall. And you remember Genesis 3.15, important passage. We'll go back to that passage over and over because in that passage we see the promise of redemption. The promise that through the seed of a woman, all of this will be made right. So chapter 4 ends with hope as last week. that Despite Cain, despite the wickedness of, of his generation... And they're pursuing the world without God, outside of the presence of God. That God called to himself and preserved to himself a line of Seth. And so when we come in, if you want to flip back to chapter 5 with me. Chapter 5 then records the generation. It takes us from Seth, the little mountain peaks from Seth to Enoch to Noah. There is a sobering passage here in Genesis 5. If you look with me at verse 5, it says, Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. That should sober us just a little bit. This man created in the image of God to know Christ perfectly, to live in perfect relationship with God and man. And he would have lived eternally in that state, yet but for sin, now we read exactly as the Lord had told him he died. And so Genesis 5 is just this. They lived, they died. They lived, they died. They lived, they died. The penalty of sin being paid over and over, and yet through that, God preserving for himself a seed. We have hope even in Genesis 5, with all this living and dying, for in verses 21 to 24, look with me on that. It says, when Enoch was 65 years, he followed Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he followed Methuselah 300 years, and he had sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that's a profound verse for all kinds of reasons. 
But what it provides for us is this hope that despite the evil of man and its evil generation that existed then and exists now, yet we see this Enoch, the symbol of hope, a man who walked with God. I don't know if you know this. Uh, you got Methuselah in here living to 969 years. We've got our own Methuselah at Parkwood. His name's M.O. Owens. I don't know if you know him, but he's, he preached until he was over 100 years old every, every Sunday. We've only had three pastors at Parkwood. And, uh, and he, the Lord has blessed him with a long life and, and much wisdom, and he's still with us, and we praise the Lord for that. And, um, but in this story, then, we begin to see this narrative has two main actors, God, who is the center of everything and the center of this book, and we have Noah. So I had to put this at the beginning intentionally because I want us to ask this just to correct ourselves, what's the point of this story this morning for us? Let's just not default to the wrong thing. Noah, the ark, the flood, the rainbow. Brothers and sisters, we've done travesty to Scripture. When we read these narratives and simply derive this vegetal morality from it, and we miss the gospel, this is not simply about being nice so you can go to heaven. This is not the point of the text. It's not just simply about being good. I want you to see these two contrasts this morning. The gospel. This is the Mount Everest, so to speak, of the narrative this morning. Noah is God's righteous servant who by his obedience and work delivers his posterity, a renewed humanity from eschatological judgment and wrath. This is Noah. So what's the point? I want you to see this more. Noah is a type of Christ, for you see Jesus Christ is God's righteousness, righteous servant, who by his obedience delivers his posterity, a renewed humanity, from the wrath to come. This is the point, and we dare not miss it this morning. I just want to say it so I don't miss it. That's why I moved it up there. I was like, Stephen, you need to be reminded of this. So that's what we want to get this morning. And so as we begin the narrative in chapter 6, from chapter 6 to chapter 9, is one narrative. That's why we're doing it all this morning. And it opens with God's knowledge of wickedness and the ceaselessness of evil of humanity. And we have this very hard and confusing text in Genesis 1 to 6. And it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were, who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, I know when we read this, we ask this big question. Who are these sons of God and these daughters of man? And, and we've been arguing about that for years. And if, if it's really something you want to study, there's five scholarly options for this, and I'd be glad if you want to know about them you can study them. But quite honestly, we get stuck there and we miss the point. 
Look at verse 2. They saw, they took. Remind you of anything. It's what happened in the garden. Eve saw it, she took it, she ate it. So here's what we have. We don't simply have an Adam and an Eve sinning. We don't simply have a Cain. We have the pervasive evil that is sweeping the whole society. Large societies of people are only thinking about evil continually. This is the point. And so in verse 3, the Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. His days shall be 120 years. And so this, we see God seeing, God responding. This means one of two things. Either he's limiting lifespan, which will happen later, doesn't happen immediately, or it's simply a pronouncement of impending judgment. Because make no mistake, these wicked people will perish. Verse 5 and 6, it says the wickedness of man, that's important, the wickedness of man grieved the Lord to his heart. The corruption that was in the hearts of man causing a response. This is an emotional response. One of two we see. First response from God was that he was grieved. God sees, God responds. Listen, God is not indifferent to sin. And so we see then this second response, God's judgment of human wickedness. And despite what we're seeing, God's salvation of a remnant. Look with me at verse chapter 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I don't know when we read these passages what that does inside of you, but there should be some soberness as this second response from God comes up, judgment. And when the judgment of God comes, it is swift and it is terrible. So we see this volition. First, emotional. He was grieved. Second, was volitional. He will judge. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their, their, their way on earth. Sin is ultimately always before God, and it is ultimately against God. Psalms 14, 1-4 says, it's on the screen, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. So God takes knowledge of it. God, and then look at verse 13. God determines. God makes a determination in verse 13. He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is violent. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Write this down. Corruption brings destruction. God then is makes a distinction between those who are rebelling against Him and those who walk with Him. 
And so we see this remnant chain that began with Seth, and now we see Enoch, and now we see Noah. And in verse 8 it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in the midst of this judgment, we see another judgment. We see grace. We see the mercy of God. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Don't get this wrong. For grace is by nature unmerited. Titus 3, 5, and 6, speaking of our own salvation, says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Grace is unmerited, and yet we see Noah receiving grace, and then notice what happens in verse 9. This is, this is clear. Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had a family. If you've been to growth group yet, or you're going to growth group later to this tonight or this week, we've been talking about, we're going to talk about practical holiness this week and next week. Looking at what does it look like for those who walk with God? What does it look like to walk with God? What does it look like to live a life that is blameless? that is righteous, but this was Noah. And so Noah was commissioned to build an ark, Genesis 6, 14 to 22. I just want you to see one verse here to start with. Look at verse 14. It says, make, your, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Here's the word I want you to focus on, make. God begins to say, make this. Make that. Make. Here's the question. Could God have spoke this ark into existence? He could have. But he didn't. And there is two parallel things, but one is more important than the other. You see, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but faith is never alone. We see a faith that works, but Think of this, the greater picture. Think of this in light of Noah being a type of Jesus. Here's the reality. You are saved by works. You are. Christ works. Christ working. He came to the earth, and His active obedience actually accomplished something. So we see Noah commissioned to build the ark in God in verse 17, chapter 6, verse 17. says, For behold, I will bring a flood upon the earth to destroy it. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So God told him to make. God promised, I will. So have you ever seen a tweet of a quote from Noah? Can you go to Lifeway back in that back right-hand section and get you a shirt that's got some kind of famous phrase that Noah said? Why is that? Because we don't have any recording that Noah said anything. Here's, what, here's the point. <laughs> the author wanted you to, us to see. Noah simply obeys. God says, go make. I will. He says, I believe you. And he went. This is the obedience. Make no mistake. Noah built the ark plank by plank. Year by year. In front of a generation that thought he was nuts. Second Peter calls him 
a herald of righteousness. That as he was obeying God, he was declaring, he was warning. And no one listened. And in Genesis 7, Genesis 7 and verse 1, God speaks again. God gives another command. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into your ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So guess what Noah does? <laughs> Look at verse 5. Noah obeys. But not just Noah. This is not just a picture of Noah. This is a picture of Noah's family, for they all obeyed by faith. So we see grace alone, faith alone, and then we see this picture, the Lord's remnant enter salvation. They enter the ark, and in verse 16, it says, And those entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. You see, this is a picture. The ark is also a picture of Christ, of us entering. What does it mean to be in Christ? It is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and when Christ saves, it is forever. He shuts us up. And about the time these folks get shut up in the ark, saved, what happens? Judgment comes. Verses 10 and 24 of chapter 7. And it is sudden, and it is terrible, and it is complete. Look with me at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, of the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. And anything that was not in the ark experienced the purging power of God's wrath as he poured it out on all creation. And in verse 22, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. That picture of God stooping down into man and breathing in him the breath of life, now we see God's judgment of that breath of life being taken. And they were all swept away. The end of verse 23 says, They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those were with him in the ark. There is only one way to salvation. It is Christ alone. But think about this. So they're saved. <laughs> and if you ever felt this way, they're 40 days, 40 nights, and the rain stops. What are they, what are they doing? They're bobbing on the top, of the, <laughs> the top of the water. The only thing that existed. You, you ever felt, okay, I'm saved, now what? Felt like you're sort of all alone and God sort of forgot you? I know a man named David wrote a lot about that. And so we see in chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered. God remembered. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. I mean, think of this in light of the original audience. Do you remember when they... They were delivered out of Egypt, and they said, Woo, okay, we're finally free, and it didn't take long before they started getting hungry. And they say, Lord, did you save us? Did you save us from bondage only to have us die out here in the wilderness? Did you save us just to kill us? Just to leave us by ourselves? 
But you see in chapter 6, verse 18, God had made a promise to Noah. He'd made a covenant with him to, to deliver him, to save him and his family. This is what God remembers. God does not forget. You see, God remembering implies God moving towards an object or towards a people. This moving forward towards something is based on a previous commitment that he's made to that. He made a promise to Noah, and God will never go back on his word. As surely as he said, I will destroy all flesh, and he did, he said, I will save Noah, and he does. This is the gospel. This is your salvation, but this was Noah's reality. At the same time, the water didn't go down in 24 hours like draining a bathtub. <laughs> it took months. So we see verse, in chapter 8, verse 14, several months went, went by as the waters receded and the earth began to dry. So don't miss this picture of this creation, fall, redemption, and now this recreation as the waters begin to separate, dry land begins to come out. And you remember Noah as he would send out the bird? Remember the little dove finally to bring back this little, what was that little twig showing? Foliage. It's a tree out there. God's doing something. This is the picture of God's creation, God's bringing from chaos back to order, a new beginning. And then that day in chapter 8, verse 15, you know they was waiting on, that day that God said, y'all can leave. It's like, whoo, <laughs> my goodness, I can't imagine the, the smell of how good that ground felt when they stepped on it. So God tells them that they can leave the ark, and then he tells them to let the animals loose. Let them be fruitful and multiply. So we have this picture of God's recreating, of God sending out the animals again to replenish the earth, and God's not done. God, then man, receives a promise for the future. So look with me in verse chapter 8 and verse 20. Chapter 8 and verse 20. I want you to see Noah's worship in God's promise. Noah's worship and God's promise. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike down every living creature again as I have done. While the earth remains... It's important. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what do we see? Noah stuck in that ark all those months with his family and all those animals. He gets out. What does he do? He worships. But the author of this book wants you to make sure that we understand what kind of worship he was doing because look at what he put on there. He didn't have to record it this way. He said that he offered burnt offerings on the altar. So he's wanting us to make sure of it. He's teaching something. And this goes, this is not the Mosaic and the Levitical laws. It's going to be years before. But he's recording something for a people who's reading this. You see, burnt offerings are for propitiation. Burnt offering removes the wrath. This is a, 
amazing picture that Noah and his family gets off the boat with the animals that he had saved and he offers a burnt offering before the Lord. Isaiah 12, 1-6 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord. God is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His need deeds among the people. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously. Let, let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Noah gets and looks at the salvation and, he's offer, and he offers atonement for his own sin. Thanksgiving to God for their salvation. And God blesses Noah. And so now we see in verses 1 to 7, now man begins to give in this this re, reissuing of their responsibility to be fruitful and multiply. We see this new beginning. And check this out in verse 3. This is good news. They can eat meat. I don't know. Me, I'd say, Mama, make me some liver mush. And maybe, maybe Noah's like, hey, how about a hamburger? I don't know. And I, if you're vegetarian, I'm just saying. That, was just a, that, was, that verse 3 was just for me. He put everything under their, under their authority. Again, I wish we had more time in chapter 9 and verse 8 to 17. God's covenant was known as offspring is given. I want to read this. It's so important. And God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall be the flesh be cut off of the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all the future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again be become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and you and all flesh that is on the earth. This covenant did not depend on human obedience. God made a covenant. And he says, if you live, and it's just, we're going to talk about a couple of them in a minute, these other things that God established, that if you live, you will see the enjoyment of this covenant. But everyone experiences the joy and the benefits of this covenant. This is the question I ask myself. Is it possible to be living in a covenant and not enjoy it? 
I mean, you're living in the new covenant if you're in Christ. I got a question for you this morning. Are you enjoying it? God means to be enjoyed, to be relished in. He is not a lab rat to dissect. He is a person to know. He wants us to know. And so this promise, I will never destroy the earth by flood again. When Christ returns to judge, the next time it will be by fire. God's covenant sign. This is such a picture. As God, as a warrior, the bow of God's wrath has been poured out on mankind. And here's what he says. I'm going to hang it up. This is what he does. Moses offers a, a, a offering. God blesses them and God makes a promise to Noah and his offspring, which is us. And he hangs up that bow. It's a sign of peace. Listen to me. The rainbow does not belong to the homosexual movement or LGTB or anybody else. It's God's. We do not redefine it. We do not shrink back from it. Every time we see a rainbow, God remembers His promises and we remember His grace. When you see it, you ought to think of God. Two takeaways. One, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Look at it with me. God wants to make sure that people understand the sanctity of human life. Chapter 9 and verse 4. That you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for all your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. And from every beast I will require it from man. And from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. See, God says the blood belongs to God because blood reflects life and all life belongs to God. And so what God does here, listen, I'm just delivering the mail this morning. God institutes the death penalty before the Mosaic law in his recreation of this new to lift life up as precious. He raised the value up and says, if you shed blood, your blood must be shed. This is how precious life is. Life is precious to God and so make no mistake. God's word is clear. God gets no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And neither should we. Life is precious. This is why we go with the gospel. Second truth. According to the, Mosaic, to, the, to the Noahic covenant, there's plenty of resources in the world. This is what he said. We do not, listen, we, we hear this in students, we hear it in school. We don't have an overpopulation problem. We don't. We have a sin problem. Listen to what Christopher Wright says. The ongoing history of the human race is based on the endurance of this Noahic covenant. As all development agencies point out, the hunger of so many in the human race is not because of an overall shortage of food supply on earth or the inability of the earth to produce for its current or future population. The productive resources of the earth's crust and the oceans seem almost limitless in their silent renewability, God has kept His covenant. It is human incompetence, greed, injustice, and aggression that deny the benefits of it to so many. God gives us the means to live and let live. Humanity chooses to live and let die. 
God's covenant is true. And so we see this amazing narrative ending and concluding, not with judgment, but with restored peace. Not with annihilation, but with preservation for those who walk with God. This is our hope. You see, Noah is clearly a type of Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. He, he is the new Adam representing the human race. He was a man that was righteous, blameless in his generation, that walked with God, who obeyed God without question, a person with whom God made a new start in this world. But listen to me. Look at chapter 9 and verse 18 to 29. I wish it wasn't here, but it was. And it's here for a reason. Noah was not the better Adam. He wasn't. And here we have the reliability and the authority of Scripture just being honest with us. For in verse 20, we see that Noah became a worker of the ground just like Adam was. So Noah worked the ground. He planted a vineyard. He's given the same, same authority and responsibility and job that Adam had, and that was to master the, the ground. And what do we see happening? Noah drank, drunk naked in a tent. Then we have Ham dishonoring his father, and we say, here we go again. You see, God destroyed everyone, because, but to see those ones that had to offer a, a sin offering for themselves brought their sin with them. And as one author says, out, out of the virtues and vices grew the nations of the world because the nations came from right there, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the narrator chooses now to focus on the Canaanites. And so the Jewish original audience understood that this thorn in your flesh, these Canaanites, it just won't go away. They're accursed people. And one day, they will serve you. Here we have the end of this. Verse 29, guess what? Noah dies. Noah dies. And so guess what? He's not the one. <laughs> He's not the one. He, he pointed to the one. He was a type of the one, but he's not the one. So what today? Am I living as if there's no judgment? Matthew 24, verses 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the day, those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And I am sorry if preachers have beat you up with that. But I say that with a heavy heart. I've studied this all week that this is true. That as surely as God judged Noah's generation, He will judge this one? As I studied this, I thought of that story of Mount St. Helens. I was a really young boy then. It was in 1980. There was a guy named Harry Truman, not the president. He lived at the mountain of Mount St. Helens. As it began to show signs of it, that it was awake, and that it was growing, and that there was danger. Then the side of the mountain began to swell. 
And people kept telling him to leave. And he said, this is my life. I will not leave. And on early in the morning, May 18th in 1980, Mount St. Helen exploded with a blast stronger than an atomic bomb. And Harry was swept away. And listen, it was sudden, it was visible, and it was terrifying. But in the midst of this, God gives us hope. And so my question for me and for you is, am I walking with God? I'm not asking you if you pray to prayer. I'm not asking me if you can quote the Baptist faith and message or anything else. I'm not asking you what you can articulate. I'm asking if your actual life reflects you are personally, intimately, and obediently walking with your God. This is our question. How do I know? Hebrews 11 says this about Noah by faith. Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was saved the way we were saved, by faith in the one that is to come. You see, in his obedience, trusting in God's word and obeying what God said, he reflected, I am not with the world, I am with Christ. So the have you realized that the only through Jesus Christ can you experience a restored, renewed relationship with God, forgiveness of your sins, past, present, future, and live with joy as His image bearer until He comes. With no fear of the wrath to come because Christ has already drank our wrath. There is none left for those that are in Christ. This is the message. This is the good news. Why, why are we inside the ark? By God's grace. See, the flood is not just, a, just about wrath. It is about cleansing. It's about a new beginning. And one that we can have through Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, I know no other way to pray. But as David did in Psalms 51... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, that I, may, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. through your Son, our Lord, our wrath-absorbing, sin-atoning, life-giving substitute, that because we have put our hope and our faith in Him, He will forgive us 
and you have forgiven us. And for that, Lord, we now stand to our feet and worship you. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. Stand with us and worship the King.